The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we say thank you for the great privilege that we just sang about that you have saved that you have intervened in this world and in our individual lives and you have drawn us to you though we were running. You have drawn us to you. You've opened our eyes and you have saved us. You've made us yours. There are more still to come, but we right now, we, we are sitting here in a sea of blessing. We are your chosen race, your royal priesthood, your holy nation, a people who weren't a people but now are, those who had not received mercy but now have. That's us. Others to come, yes, but that's us right now. And we say thank you. And then we move beyond that and say, now please, Thank you and please will you help us now to walk in a manner that is worthy of this calling. Not in our own flesh, but in your power. But we have to walk. We have to put feet in front of one another and we have to walk it out. And I pray you would help us now to see and understand something, what that looks like. So towards that end, Lord, open the scriptures this morning. Make our words and our listening clear here and Would you clear all distractions and help us to focus and to hear your word and to follow you? That's our hope, our prayer this morning, Lord, will you teach us. Spirit of God, have your way in our minds and hearts. Make the word clear and grow us up as your saved ones, as your people. Thank you, Lord. We trust this time to you and say amen. If you've ever lived in a foreign country, you've probably experienced the strong desire to just fit in. That can be the case sometimes in certain communities here in our country. If you've been somewhere, then you understand that. But it's especially true somewhere else. We are keenly aware as we walk down the street, as we ride public transportation, as we go into any old restaurant to eat, we just go to the store to shop, everybody is looking at you. You stick out, and they all stare. You'd love to be able to blend in, to be anonymous. It feels so awkward. And if the country is not particularly friendly towards Westerners or Americans especially, it also feels a bit threatening. Some people look at you, and some people give you looks. And they approach you to engage, and you're never quite sure what's going to happen. So... Being anonymous suddenly feels safe. And so you change the clothes you wear, your hairstyle maybe. You learn to read the crowd and you act like they do. And you keep your head down, your eyes down, and above all, you keep your mouth shut because that's often the the first clearest giveaway. You don't speak up and you don't make a scene so as not to be seen. That's instinctively how we live when we find ourselves as strangers in a land not our own. And it often works. 
It's how you can get through easily without making waves or causing any problems for yourselves. And that often resembles our approach to life, spiritually speaking, when we find ourselves to be spiritual sojourners, spiritual exiles, even here in the land of our birth. We read the crowd and we act like they do, so as to fit in. We don't want to make waves. You keep your head down and above all, keep your mouth shut. That's often the dead giveaway. You, you want to blend in and slide through quietly without causing any problems. And that works. It, it does work. The problem is that's not what God's called us to. It's not what he saved us for or empowered us towards, and it's not actually where we find real life. So ultimately, it doesn't work. We are here to stand out from what's around us, not to smoothly fit in. Anonymity is our enemy. And that's what we'll be considering today in the middle of 1 Peter chapter 2 as we begin a new large section of this book. There are a lot of ways to divide the book of 1 Peter, but one common one is to note this, this change here as he uses the word exile again and begins a new section. Before this, his emphasis has been on, on, a, on a theological perspective. And after this, he, it's not a complete term, but he's more situationally specific. More like how to apply what I was just talking about. How do, how do you live that out? How do you walk that out now? It's not a complete turn, but he does start something new here by once again calling us exiles and telling us that we live not to blend in, but live to stick out. Trying to be different. Trying to be noticed. Not in obnoxious ways, but in ways that are actually good for us and good for those around us and that bring glory to God. That's his call on us. That's, that's our, our purpose here, and that's actually where we find life. So we'll be looking at that this morning. And really, this, this as I said, you know, this is kind of one of the ways to divide the book because this kind of is a header for much that follows. There's a lot of similarity in, in weeks that are coming, in passages that are coming. We'll begin this morning, though, in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. I'm going to read them and then draw two observations from them. Here's our passage, beginning in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's the passage, 1 Peter 2. 11 and 12. Two observations. Here's the first. For the sake of our souls, we must resist worldly thoughts and desires. For the sake of our souls, we must resist worldly thoughts and desires. Peter begins here from a loving and, and really quite a tender posture. He's got a command coming, but, he, but he's going to begin by addressing us as beloved. He loves these people that he's about to command hard 
get something hard to. And he's reflecting there how, how God looks at us. You know, God has a, a standard he's going to call us to, but it's from a, it's from a posture of not a soldier, not, not, a, not a, a commandant, but a, a partner in love. Beloved, I urge you, or I strongly exhort you, this is very important. You must, must do what? Abstain from the passions of the flesh. This, this is hard. Beloved, clear and firm. You must say no over and over again. The grammar here is emphasizing both that the urging is constant and the saying no is constant. It's continual. God is always urging us to be always abstaining, to always be saying no. Resisting the passions of the flesh. You hear that word passions, and maybe we tend to think about like powerful emotions, or maybe even volatile feelings. But really, the word passions is, is something that can be quite quiet and quite subdued and quite, depending on your personality, it might be really under the radar because passions are really just the things that drive us, the things that move us, thoughts and desires that exert influence. So you could say the lusts or the longings or the wants, the hopes, the dreams, the aspirations. P pick a word that come from, in this case, the flesh. Fallen nature in us. Not all passions, of course, come from the flesh. You can have a passion for God, for instance. That's a good thing. But if we're honest, lots of the thoughts, I think, that we entertain in our minds and that we roll around up there give space to lots of what we want and desire is not godly. Or maybe the degree to which we want it or, or let ourselves kind of move on into the thinking about it. Maybe that degree is not godly. The amount of control that it that has on us now is not godly. For example, you may want respect, which is a good thing. We're made that way. So that so having a desire for that is not wrong. However, maybe you notice aside you do take time to examine yourself to notice, don't you? To notice how you are, what, you, what makes you tick, how you work. Maybe you notice, I don't respect so much that I get angry often at people who disrespect me. And I, I notice that I kind of do things and I look to see who noticed and how did that affect their opinion of me. And that means that I notice that I'm actually not really consistently living for the love of God and the love of others. I'm actually loving myself and trying to enhance my own reputation so that people think much of me. And there you notice respect, a good thing, twisted by the flesh has become a passion that's ungodly. Even a good thing can be twisted, can be turned. That's the flesh at work in you, driving what might otherwise be good, what might otherwise be just fine, into something that's wrong. So it's not just, as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, it's not just the world out there that's, that's kind of like pulling you, trying to make you drift. It's something inside of you. We are still broken in here. 
the flesh is still present. Something in us makes us want to drift from God and, and to follow after the world. And these things are rising up constantly in us, worldly passions and sinful longings, things that do not match who you are, beloved. Who you are is God's chosen race, his royal priests. Those who have received mercy and have been welcomed in to be his people, the objects of his affection. It's who you are, which means that you then are sojourners and exiles here among this nation, among this people here in the world. Just like in the beginning of the book, here again he calls us exiles, which of course, as we've talked about, has a kind of negative bent on that. It means that we are outcasts and, and we're going to be set aside by others. But there's another piece of that, which the word sojourner added in kind of brings up, this, this kind of reminder that not only are the people around me setting me out, but actually that's in a way appropriate because this isn't my home. I am different. It's true. I'm just a sojourner here. I'm, I'm an exile because I'm not actually a native. I live somewhere else. This is kind of reminding us as God's people, we're just temporarily here. We are citizens of his nation, not this one. Not, not the world in general, not the United States. And this, this is kind of maybe hard for us because we are citizens of the United States, most of us probably. And it's appropriate to love the country that you are a citizen of this one or some other, and to serve it and give some affection to it. But we have to keep in mind at the same time, I'm an exile and a sojourner. I'm a citizen of somewhere else, actually. And that kingdom is writing off all these kingdoms. Every one of these is going down. Only one stands in the end. That's your home. You're not from here, actually. And so when in Rome, recognizing you're not a Roman, don't act like the Romans. Don't go there. Resist that pull, the temptation that rises, not just from them, but rises from what's inside of us and says, like, I look at that. I see that it's coming at me. It's attractive. I want more of that. No. Beloved. Resist the passions of the flesh. Now, he's not elaborating here on what all of that could be. The assumption is that you can notice it if you look, whatever it is for you. The emphasis here is on the call to get tough with yourself and to resist the pull, and you can resist. We can resist when the ideas come up and the temptations arise and you can take your thoughts captive and submit them to the truth, to Christ. This is the privilege won for you by Christ. He broke off the bondage to sin. This is what Romans 6 and 7 is making clear to us, that we used to be slaves to sin, used to be. 
But Christ came and submitted himself to sin and died and us with him, died to it, and then raised us up with the Spirit living in us such that we do not have to walk voluntarily. This is Romans 6 and 7, right? Voluntarily as slaves to sin, but we can say no to that and not be pulled off, not be drifted or inclined to walk after self and sin, but to walk instead after the Lord, obeying him and depending on him. That is the privilege one for you. The power of God living in you to say no. So, you can stop replaying in your mind how much that sin would satisfy you. How good that would feel. How normal it would look because everybody does that. You can stop replaying that. You can stop amping yourself up at how wrong it was for that person to treat you like that and how appropriate it would be for you to be treated better. You can stop daydreaming about sexual fantasies. You can stop imagining what you would do with more money. You can resist the temptation to feel sorry for yourself and doubt God's goodness because of some hard circumstance. So on. You don't have to go that way, beloved. The gospel won for you freedom. Not just a freedom that is like a kind of you stand on your toes and you kind of like grit your teeth, but a freedom to say, I can set my mind on something else. I can, I can run with my mind not to what that would be for me or how wrong that was, but I can set my mind on the things that are above where my life actually is hidden. I can set my mind on Christ. And he will, he will move in and change the inside of you. You are a member of a chosen race and a royal priesthood. You have received mercy and you stand in grace and God promises you, I'll come to you and help. We are not of this world. How can we live it any longer? So you got to get militant. Not against the people of the world. you got to get militant against the passions of your flesh. Resist continually. That's the emphasis here. These passions are continually rising up and we continually resist because they are not fitting for us as who we are, but also because all of this yuck will eat your soul for lunch. The verse ends with which these things wage war on your soul continually. It's coming for you. That's not one time. The grammar makes that clear, but it's also in the, in the image of waging war. It's not an attack that is once faced and stopped and then is over. It's not even a battle in which there are numerous attacks that if one is over, it's a war with battles and attacks that lasts for the duration as long as you are here. You are at war. And it will eat your soul for lunch if you do not resist. 
So fight. Not, not, with, not with greater determination, although there's determination involved in it, but fight with what you set your mind on. You think of Colossians 2 and 3. Lots of places in the Scripture talk about this. But the call is to fight because your soul is worth it. This rises up and seeks to destroy the place in you from which you live. It's the wellspring of life, the soul, the heart, the inner you. You want, you, you really, really, really do want to live a life that is full, a life that, that walks with God in, in vibrancy, knowing him and communing with him, and that has power to, to live and to move, and that sees joy like chapter 1 talks about, and knows the, the peace even amidst hardships. You want to walk in the fruit of the Spirit. You want a life like that. And these things press in on you and say, here's something good, come over here and kill you. You don't want that. But they don't advertise it like that. No wise assailant does. Your soul, the wellspring of life, is worth it, beloved. So resist. Say no. The passions of the flesh that rise up in you and the temptations from the world that seem so enticing and are so deadly. You need this for life. It's fitting for who you are. And you also really, really need this because you really, really need a soul that's full of Christ for the next point. Because the next point's pretty challenging. For the sake of your souls is what's appropriate for us, and it prepares us for the difficult work of loving the world all around us, even as it is against us. Which leads us to the second point. Here it is. We must live lives of good as an evangelistic witness to the world. We must live lives of good as an evangelistic witness to the world. Verse 12 is not a second separate thought. It's the second half of the same thought in verse 11. We resist one lifestyle. We say no to this, and then we say yes to verse 12, the second lifestyle, to conduct ourselves in a way that is honorable blessing to the world, or as it says at the end of the verse, which is full of good deeds. He's talking about a life that is Righteous and just and generous and kind in every way a life of good, with a capital G. That's what our lives should be like among the Gentiles, as he says. Again, he's using the same imagery that we saw last week where Peter is so connecting all of the Old Testament promises and blessings to the New Testament Christian that in his eyes we are Israel and the non-believing world are the Gentiles. And we are exiles scattered in the non-believing world, sojourners here in a foreign land. And while here, we live lives of good, doing good to the city in which we dwell, like the prophets told Israel exiled to do. Or, in the words of Jesus, we let our lights 
shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. It's, it's almost identical. Peter, Jesus, same thing. That's the call on us. And we're called to such conduct consistently and continually always again, even though the world rejects us. This is not some bit of, of naive perspective. That's, that's not how he's thinking here. The world is for sure against us and will for sure let that be known to us. Peter says, so that when, not if, when they speak against you as evildoers, that's going to happen. That is happening. It's always happened. It's going to happen. It happens increasingly, maybe here. It always happens. So we should not be surprised by that. That's the case. And that's what makes good deeds remarkable, if you think about it. Everybody buys their friend a nice gift. Who buys their enemy a nice gift? It's actually kind of part of the necessary context. It shows there's something in us that's powered by something else, by a divine love that's coming from somewhere else. So doing good to enemies, to those who accuse us and persecute us, that's not normal, but that's what's winsome. When God opens eyes to see it, but that's, that's what's challenging, which is why verse 11 comes before this. We've, we've got to have souls that are alive and full and that are living off of God, not off of other people's opinions of us. Souls that are living off of God can then give away their life to others. Love those who oppose and even attack us. And keep in view the goal, which is evangelistic. We aren't doing this for ourselves, verse 12, but in the end that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's a statement about becoming a Christian. Only Christians glorify God on the day of visitation, alluding to the, the day of his return. Revelation tells us that when Christ comes back, the non-believers who are present will not glorify him, it says, but will be enraged. True, every knee will bow and every tongue confess, but that is not a happy, glorifying confession. That is an enraged, compelled confession. Through gritted teeth and anger, when God visits judgment on them. But what Peter's talking about is a, the happier half of visitation, when God visits salvation. When God visits in a delivering and rewarding way, the Christian response when that happens is to glorify God and say, blessed be your name, thank you. And that is going to happen, Peter tells us. Connect, connect the verses here. We've, one of the difficulties in, in addressing pieces of the Bible over the course of weeks is that it's easy to forget what was right before but if you connect back to the verses right before, what Peter is saying here is that there are going to be people who will be glorifying God when he comes who right now aren't. Who right now are, if you roll back up to verse 8, who are disobeying the word and rejecting Christ and us with him. So we, we talked in previous weeks about verse 8 and, and how 
God's election works, and we pointed out there that we do not know from looking at today what to think about tomorrow. What this is saying is you will look at people today and say, that guy hates me. And tomorrow, standing beside you, he will be glorifying the Lord Jesus. That's possible. How so? He will see your good works. That's the argument of the passage. See your good works and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Not just notice it, see it. God will open people's eyes to see something through your good deeds done to those who persecute you. He'll open their eyes to see something true about where that comes from and who you are and who that person is and who God who stands behind it is. This, this sticks out like a sore thumb and it compels thinking and then it commends the gospel that drives that to those given eyes to see. Years ago, I read an account written by a woman who had come to Christ out of a lesbian lifestyle. I've told this story in some places. Maybe you've heard this before. And as she told it, she worked in a cubicle next to a Christian man. And while they had once discussed the Bible's view on a homosexual lifestyle, he'd made clear that God says that it is a sinful lifestyle to be actively pursued is wrong. He made that clear, but that wasn't the subject of their conversation ever after that. They just were there, and they worked together, and they were around one another. They carried on. But how he was just really bothered her, she said. Such that one day while he was out, she went to their boss to file a formal complaint against him related to religious bigotry. And as she came back from the boss's office, the Christian guy also returned. He'd been on a coffee run, and he'd brought her one too. And as he put it down on the desk, this is, this is her writing, she was pierced by conviction. She saw his good work and was convicted. Well, I'm in the office trying to get him fired on a trumped-up charge of bigotry, He's downstairs buying me a latte at the same time. Hmm. Which one of us is the religious bigot here? Which one of us is intolerant of the other here? Which one of us is actually mistreating? Who, who has the mean-spirited attitude here? And she was suddenly convicted by that. She saw her sins, those sins, and as she says, that's what started her on the road to Christ. He bought her a cup of coffee. That's what he did for her. In the context of their disagreement, in the context of her mistreatment of him and her slandering him, that's what made it noteworthy to her. I know how I treat him. I know what I think of him. And now I discover something about how he treats me. That's what Peter's talking about here. And notice, this is Peter's evangelism strategy. We've got to think about this a little bit here because I think this is kind of interesting. That's his evangelism strategy, and it works. They will glorify God. That's the outcome. It works. 
not for everyone, but for those whom God is calling and, important point here, who otherwise hear the gospel. Notice the context here is, is that they are slandering you because you're a Christian. They know who you are. They know what you're about. They know who you're about. Somehow they already know that. It's in that context that God gives sight to see the good works. It, there's an important context there. They're slandering and accusing because they know who we are. We know what we're about. This is the strategy that works. We have to speak the gospel, but this is the ongoing regular witnessing strategy that effectively evangelizes the people who are around us. Sometimes we read the New Testament, as we think about evangelism, we get too focused on the Apostle Paul. Paul models a lot for us, but you realize Paul himself and his methodology, Paul was a frontier church-planting missionary, an apostle. So we, we, have to, we have to kind of process a little bit of how he was and what he did and think, how does that abide in the ongoing church? Here we have Peter expressly teaching the ongoing church, here's what you should do. Not, not, I'm not saying throughout Paul, but I'm saying we've got to bring in Peter and consider something really important here. He's telling us something that works in an ongoing day-in, day-out living. You ever wonder how you live on mission in your office? I had a conversation with somebody two weeks ago who's getting ready to start a new job, and she was asking me about, like, like how, do, how do I be a witness there at my job? Well, you cannot, day after day, hour after hour, express the simple gospel over and over and over again to the very same people. They're going to get tired of hearing that. What do you do? Verses 11 and 12 is what you do. You live on mission, trusting that they'll never get tired of being done good to. And they'll notice that if God gives them eyes to see it. And as it exists, probably in a context that will provide challenges, as it exists in the challenges that are coming, you don't know where they are or what's going to bring them up, but somehow it's going to exist in a context that's going to make it asymmetrical. Like, you believe this. You're, you're, you've told me. I already understand that. I, I know who you are. You believe this, but you're, you're treating me like this. That does not make sense. We hate you. And you seem to love us. What? We disregard you. And you sent me a card on my birthday. How, how is that? I'm arguing against your, your, your right to be here while you're buying me a latte. What? Tell me, what is the reason for this hope that is in you? And we better be ready to answer that. That's 1 Peter chapter 3. It's coming up. This is his strategy. This is how he thinks of ongoing bread and butter ministry. Now that is not to say that it is wrong to walk up to somebody cold and share the gospel. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that's not most of regular life. Most of regular life, you see the same people over and over and over again. 
right? Because all of this doesn't work if you don't see the same people over and over and over again. This is how we live among the Gentiles. One bit of problem that we often face with this approach is that we don't know any Gentiles. I don't say anything more than hi to the guy who lives next to me or the person who works next to me and I'm on a church softball team with only Christians. I don't actually know any Gentiles. I mean, I'm polite to everybody that I meet, like everybody else is. But where can I get close? This is the problem. How do we get close enough to people? Do you, how many non-Christian friends do you have? We might need to actually back the truck up here and say, I don't actually live among the Gentiles, and so I don't have really any conduct among them. Nobody knows me. I don't know anybody. I work from home. This is awesome. They don't have to see anybody. That's not what you're called to. If you work from home, great. I have no problem with that. But then you need to recognize I've got another job. I've got another calling that I need to work double hard on. The simplicity, the ease of being able to work at home means that I've actually got other kind of work to do. I've got to get out and be around people if I'm going to be an effective witness. And I've got to be around people to a degree that I know them and they know me so that I can have a conduct among the Gentiles that would commend the gospel. If we don't understand the, the connection to people, then the idea of being a person who is a commendably good person among them, it, it doesn't have any ground to stand on. But assuming that, notice this is Peter's ground. We have to speak the gospel message, absolutely. But the bread and butter ongoing, how do you live on mission day in, day out, is you live around people and you live with people and you live a life that is good to them, that loves them, and particularly in the context when they are enemies and when they persecute you, you pray for them and you love those who are your enemies. When they tell you to give, to give you their cloak, you give them two cloaks and you go with them an extra mile. That's what stands out. That's what seems remarkable. So Peter says, here we are, Christians. Here's the call on you as sojourners and exiles in the land. Take care of your own soul first. Tend to the fire within, and then take the initiative to let that light shine out among others that they may see your good deeds, good works, your goodness to them. They may meet the love of God through you coming to them. And they will come to glorify God with us. Not everybody, but those to whom he gives eyes to see. There needs to be something to see in us, beloved. Let's pray.
Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.